The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 64, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear and shall declare the work of God for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Okay, we're going to be in today Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 25. This will finish this chapter, and it's Holy Conduct Before the Lord, Part 2. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you, he may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot, or the price of a dog, to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God." You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain." There is a lot of similarity in what is said here and what Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians. Much of that is found in 1 Corinthians 6. Moses writes about holy conduct before the Lord, and Paul writes about the same, even mirroring particular points that Moses makes at times. The idea of holiness is that of being set apart. In the case of holiness to the Lord, it speaks of being set apart to him in life, conduct, and action. The more we move towards him, the less our life will be affected by the flesh. And it is the flesh that wages war against the spirit. 
This is a struggle that all of us have had and will continue to have to some extent. But the grace of God is there to cover over our failings if we are in Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. It is he who came to do God's will in order to bring us into a better hope than the law could ever provide. It is a marvelous and blessed thing God has done for us through him. Our text verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burn offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second, meaning the new covenant in Christ. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. While typing up this sermon, I noted a decidedly chiastic structure to the verses that we will look at today. Rather than specifics, for the most part, it deals with generalities, but it's pretty evident when you see it laid out. Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 25, holiness, purity, and justice. I call it miscellaneous laws for Israel. I found this on 28 June 2021, which happens to be my anniversary, by the way. Uh, the outside of the chiasm writes within the land of Israel and writes within the land. The next one is prohibitions concerning vows. And then the next one is mandates concerning vows. The next one is you shall not charge interest to your brother. That's in verse 19. And then in verse 20, it, to your brother, you shall not charge interest. And right in the middle to a foreigner, you may charge interest. And that's in verse 20 as well. The first section, verses 15 and 16, deals with the rights of a slave who had escaped from his master. At first, it might not make much sense, but in looking at the details, it all comes into focus. As far as slavery, I'm sure I've mentioned my ancestor, Thomas Garrett, before. He is who my grandfather, Thomas Garrett, was named after. He devoted his life's energy to freeing the slaves in America. As this passage deals with not returning an escaped slave, and as I needed an introduction that will fit with the theme, I'll tell you just a little bit about him once again. This is from a Wikipedia page on him, and we're just going to read a short passage from that Wikipedia page. Garrett, speaking of my great-great-great-grandfather, Garrett was also a friend and benefactor to the noted Underground Railroad conductor Harriet Tubman, who passed through his station many times. In addition to lodging and meals, Garrett frequently provided her with money and shoes to continue her missions conducting runaways from slavery to freedom. Garrett also provided Tubman with the money and the means for her parents to escape from the South. Both were free people at the time Tubman rescued them, but Tubman's father faced arrest for secreting runaway slaves in his cabin. The number of runaways Garrett assisted has sometimes been exaggerated, he said he only helped 2,700 before the Civil War put an end to slavery. In 1848, however, he and fellow Quaker John Hun were sued in federal court for helping the Emmeline and Samuel Hawkins family of seven slaves owned by two owners to escape. Although their lawyer, colleague John Wales, had managed to free them from imprisonment the previous year, when a magistrate granted a writ of habeas corpus... However, the two slave owners sued Hun and Garrett. 
U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Roger B. Taney presided at the trial in the Newcastle Courthouse and James A. Bayard, Jr. acted as prosecutor. Garrett and Hun were found guilty of violating the Fugitive Slave Act by helping a family of slaves escape. As the architect of the escape, Garrett received a $4,500 fine, later reduced to $1,500. According to Kathleen Lonsdale, referencing the American Friends Service Committee, the fine was so heavy that it left him financially ruined. Yet Thomas Garrett stood up in court and said, Judge, thou hast left me not a dollar, but I wish to say to thee and to all in this courtroom that if anyone knows a fugitive who wants a shelter and a friend, send him to Thomas Garrett and he will befriend him. A lien was put on his house until the fine was paid, and although Hun ended up losing his house in a sheriff's sale, with the aid of friends, Garrett continued in his iron and hardware business and helping runaway slaves to freedom. By 1855, traffic through the Garrett station had increased, and Sidney Howard Gay noted that in 1855 to 1856, nearly 50 fugitive slaves whom Garrett had helped arrived in New York. When I was in Japan, a master sergeant walked up to me one day. He was a black man, and his name was Garrett. And it was very common for slaves back then to take the names of people that helped them on the Underground Railroad. So I believe I have a connection to that man. He was adamant that the slaves he helped, this is again speaking of my great-great-great-grandfather, he was adamant that the slaves he helped would not be returned to their master. Whether you agree with this position or not, he was a man of principle, and he did what was right in regard to this great issue that plagued his time in history. As for the slave who escaped from his master that Moses refers to, and concerning several other interesting issues laid down in our passage today, they will be looked at in detail as we continue. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today, or I'm sorry, just one thought today, various laws. It's verses 15 through 25. Verse 15, you shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. The pronouns are all in the singular, you, Israel. It is a national mandate that the escaped slave is not to be returned to a master outside of Israel. The words here need to be taken in the fuller context, which is inclusive of the next verse. This is referring to a non-Hebrew slave that has escaped into a town of Israel. The words lotaskir, or no you shall give back, speak of being shut up as if in confinement. A paraphrase might be, you shall not reconfine slave to his master. He has escaped obtaining his freedom, and he should be allowed to continue in that state. In modern Hebrew, the words lotaskir mean to not rat out. In the end, to rat out a slave would result in the same thing happening, and so the meaning hasn't changed that much in this regard. The unusual thought of not returning a slave being included here is rather perplexing. And this is so much the case that some scholars tie it to the idea of warfare that was mentioned in the previous verses, 9 through 14, of the last sermon. However, those verses, though dealing with an army, were not really speaking of warfare, but of purity and holiness. The same idea will be seen in verses 17 and onward. 
And so it is unlikely that this is simply referring to a slave who escaped during war. Instead, Moses must be conveying the idea of purity, holiness, and what is just here as well. What seems to be the case is that the thought of him being a slave is secondary to the larger principles being set forth. In other words, it says this in Leviticus 19, And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The same principle is being stated here in Deuteronomy. Israel was a slave nation to Egypt. Each person was an individual slave as well, but they had been brought out from that. However, there is the truth that being brought from slavery in Egypt they had been brought into the bondage of the law. Paul explains this to us in Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Israel was brought out of slavery to Egypt and brought into the bondage of the law. The escaped slave was not to be returned to his master out of the same principle by which the Lord freed Israel. The idea now being set forth is that everyone is a slave to someone or something. One must choose who he will be a slave to. This principle continues on for those in Christ. As Paul says, let each one of you remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. For the escaped slave now being referred to, Moses next says, verse 16, he may dwell with you in your midst. The words continue in the singular, demonstrating that this is the slave of an alien, not one who is enslaved in Israel. He is allowed to dwell within the midst of Israel. No restrictions are placed upon him in this regard, as is seen in the next words, verse 16 going on, in the place which he chooses. These words further express his freedom. He is given complete freedom as to where he will reside. He is not restricted from any tribe of Israel, nor is he mandated to reside in a particular tribe of Israel. He is to be considered accepted in whatever tribe he settles in, which is, verse 16 going on, within one of your gates. Not only is he not restricted to or from any tribal inheritance, he is also not restricted from the security of living within a city in any given tribal inheritance. He is 
to be accepted into the gates of whatever city he chooses. One must remember that this is a matter of law. Moses has penned it, and therefore the people must comply in the same manner as any other law. This cannot be denied without violating the very law and covenant that has established them as a people. To ensure the precept was fully fleshed out, and to avoid any ambiguity at all, he next says, verse 16 going on, where it seems best to him, batov lo, in the good to him. The decision is at his pleasure alone, and no person was to interfere with it. In essence, he has all the rights of a member of the nation to determine his own place and circumstance. Anything else would be considered a hindering influence upon him, and Moses forbids that saying. Verse 16 going on, you shall not oppress him. Lo tonenu, no, you shall suppress him. The word is yana. Most translations say oppress. That would mean you shall not keep him in subservience. And that very well may be the meaning. He was a slave, and you shall not put him back into that state. However, the previous clauses speak of his freedoms and choice. One, he may dwell with you in your midst. Two, in the place he chooses. Three, within one of your gates. And four, where it seems best to him. Because of this, I would suggest that this is referring to suppression rather than oppression. They are not to suppress him or stop him from making the choice that suits him best. Regardless of this, one can see Israel as a type of life in Christ. Outside of Israel, the person is in bondage. A person that comes to Christ, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, is the Lord's freedman. However, and having that in mind, a person who comes to Israel from slavery is then made a slave to the law. Likewise, a person that comes to Christ, even if the Lord's freed man, becomes a slave to righteousness. As Paul says, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. As already said, one must choose who or what he will be a slave to. The verse here speaks of eternal salvation as clearly as it can be stated. A person who comes to Christ is to never be sent back to his previous master, meaning the devil. As a slave to Christ, he is so forever. He is forever free from the bondage he has been brought out from. That an escaped slave who comes to Israel becomes a slave to the law is seen in the very next words because they are words that apply to all in Israel, and they are binding upon them. Verse 17, there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel. Here it refers to the Kedeshah, or harlot. The word speaks of a female devotee. The word is closely tied to the word Kodesh, meaning holy, sacred, set apart, and so on. The reason is that such a person is set apart to prostitution, quite often in relation to temple prostitution. No daughter of Israel was to be forced or allowed to be set apart in this manner. It is contrary to purity and holiness and thus it is forbidden. The law is holy, and the law is righteous, and it says that no person may participate in such unrighteousness. Just as a slave who is joined to Israel is not to engage in such an act of unrighteousness, no person who comes to Christ is to seek after the flesh. Thus, the thought of a Christian being a slave to righteousness is the same as what is seen right here. This does not mean that a person in Israel cannot actually do what Moses forbids here. 
There are examples later in Scripture of them doing exactly this. And it does not mean that a Christian cannot do what is forbidden in the epistle. We all know Christians who have followed after the flesh. But the precepts are given. Moses next continues with, verse 17, going on, or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. Here it speaks of the Kadesh. It is the masculine of the word just used in the previous clause. It signifies a male who is in the same position. He is set apart to prostitution and thus a sodomite. As it is closely tied to that which is sacred, it is translated at times as a temple prostitute or a cult prostitute. Just as these were forbidden in Israel, the same is true with what is written in the New Testament epistles. Verse 18, you shall not bring the wages of a harlot. Here it speaks of the ethnon zonah, or wages of a harlot. The word ethnon is new, coming from tanah, signifying to hire, but with reference to hiring a prostitute. Thus, the ethnon is the wages spent when hiring her out. Along with that, verse 18 continues, or the price of a dog. Umechir kelev, and price dog. This is not speaking of an actual dog. Rather, it follows on with the thought of the previous clause. That spoke of the wages of a harlot. Here, a new word, mechir, or price, is joined to that of a dog, meaning the male prostitute of the previous verse. Moses is using parallelism. Ritual harlot, kedeshah, wages of a harlot. Perverted one, kadesh, price of a dog. Everybody see that? The Bible uses this literary tool all the time. You'll see parallelism to help explain something. The idea is then the dog-like manner in which the perverted one presents himself. This term is later used in Revelation 22, verse 15. But outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Having said this, because such a person is equated to a dog, it is certain that no price of an actual dog was to be included in this prohibition of being brought. Verse 18 continues, to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. The idea here is that of the necessity to pay one's nether or vow, as was already explained in Numbers. It said there in Numbers 30, then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. All of Numbers 30 details the subject of vows. Once the vow is made and confirmed, it becomes an absolute obligation to pay it. However, one could not then use the excuse that the necessity of paying a vow to the Lord would excuse obtaining the means of paying the vow through such sexual perversion. Everybody see the logic there? The reason is, verse 18 continues, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. The sale of a woman's or a man's body is in itself abominable to Jehovah. As Jehovah is Israel's God, it cannot be considered acceptable to pay a vow to him with money that was obtained in a manner which is contrary to his moral nature. The general tenor of this thought is found in the book of Romans. Here's what it says in Romans 2. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? 
You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. This could also be lumped into the thought of Romans 3, 8. Let us do evil that good may come. As Paul says of those who would say such a thing, their condemnation is just. As such, it is not acceptable to sell oneself, meaning commit evil, in order to bring forth a vowed offering to do what is proper. Verse 19, you shall not charge interest to your brother. Here the verb nashak is used. It signifies to bite. As such, it speaks of interest or usury. In other words, by adding on to the original cost for payment, it is as if biting another. Thus, the words lotashik achicha could be paraphrased as you shall not bite to your brother. With that, <laughs> Moses next explains it using the noun form of the same word. Verse 19 continues, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. The idea of lending without interest has already been stated in Exodus 22 and then again in Leviticus 25. In both instances, it speaks of lending to the poor and not charging interest. For this reason, some scholars see this as only pertaining to the poor. However, Moses does not qualify it as such. Rather, he says, your brother, without any other qualifications. And more, for strong emphasis, the Hebrew repeats the noun neshek, or interest, three times and then follows up with the verb form. It says, neshek hesef, neshek ochel, neshek kal davar asher yishak, interest silver, interest food, interest anything which is lent on interest, literally that which bites. The words, if considered in relation to Christ, show the enormity of what he did for us. Not only does he not charge interest on such things, he offers them without any cost at all. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, kesef or silver, come and buy and eat food. That word there on food that Moses uses. Yes, come buy wine and milk anything, that word that Moses uses, without money and without price. Israel is given a standard because it is a shadowy anticipation of the greater provision found in Christ towards his people, because they are his people. On the other hand, verse 20, to a foreigner, you may charge interest. The word translated as foreigner is nokri. It signifies a stranger or something out of place. It is something that does not belong because the nature of the thing is foreign. As traders came into or through the land by ship, by camel, or whatever, they would naturally be willing to lend at interest. As such, it would make no sense to forbid the same towards them. The prohibition is, therefore, only one that pertains to a brother, in this case meaning a fellow Israelite. As Moses again repeats, verse 20 continues, But to your brother you shall not charge interest. Moses turns around the words already said. No shall you charge interest to your brother. He now says, and to your brother, no shall you charge interest. In this, there can be no manipulation of the law because people love to fudge with words, don't they? It is clear and it is unambiguous. And there is a reason for this. Verse 20 continues, that the Lord your God may bless you. 
Lema'an yeberecha Yehovah Elohecha. To end purpose, may bless you, Yehovah your God. There is an end purpose in not charging interest, which is to receive the blessing of the Lord. The implication is that in charging interest, such a blessing would be withheld. For the obedient, the blessing is one which will be, verse 20 continues, in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Moses uses the word mishloach, meaning an outstretching. A more literal reading is, in all which you stretch forth your hand upon the land. One can think of everything prospering, and each time the hand reaches out, it brings in much abundance. Thought through logically, it is essentially a promise that in not asking for extra from one's brother, the Lord will, in turn, provide more than would have been obtained by asking for extra. This is the third time that Moses has made a contrast between the Nokri, or foreigner, and Achicha, or your brother. The first was in Deuteronomy 15 concerning the release of debts in the seventh year. There it said, of a foreigner, you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. The next time is in Deuteronomy 17 in relation to setting a king over themselves. There it says, You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And the third is in relation to interest. Deuteronomy 23. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest. It is of note that Israel violated all three of these. The first is recorded as being violated in Jeremiah 34. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor, behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, and to famine, and I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth. The second is recorded as being violated in John 19. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. The third is recorded as being violated in Ezekiel 22. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. The precepts clearly laid out by Moses and yet violated by Israel show the stark contrast to the greatness of Christ who perfectly fulfilled and exceeded all of the precepts of this law. Verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God. The words more precisely read, when vowing a vow to Jehovah your God. This is a voluntary act and the guidelines for it are laid out in, as noted earlier, Numbers chapter 30. When a vow is made and confirmed, it becomes binding. It must be paid. But more, Moses says, verse 21 going on, you shall not delay to pay it. There are, as in any debts or vows, reasons why such things should be paid in a timely manner. There is the possibility that the vower might not be able to pay later. If he was the victim of an accident, theft, or other obligations arising, and so on, suddenly the priorities may change. But one's primary responsibility is to personal integrity before and towards the Lord. It could be that the person will forget the vow was made. 
It may be that regret creeps in. It may be that the person dies before paying it. But again, one's primary responsibility is to personal integrity before and towards the Lord. The impetus of the law is that any vowed vow should be treated as a priority in one's life. Solomon, certainly thinking of this law now laid down by Moses, says the following, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. As a vow is voluntary, the obligation rests in a very firm manner upon the one who made it to also perform it without fail. Should he fail in this, it shows a deep lack of integrity before the Lord. Thus, verse 21 continues, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. The Hebrew is emphatic, requiring he will require it of you. The vow has been uttered and it must be performed. To delay brings in the possibility and likely state of non-performance. In this, Moses then says, verse 21 continues, and it would be sin to you. The idea of sin is that which brings a curse. This is what the Lord rebuked Israel for in the making of a vow. Malachi 1, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. To make a vow and then to sacrifice that which is blemished is to not fulfill the vow. The reason is because nothing blemished was to be offered to the Lord in a vow. That's found in Leviticus 22. In all vows, performance was expected, and it was expected in accord with the law. Verse 22, but if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. Paul says in Romans 4.15 that the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. As there is no law mandating a vow, there can be no transgression in not vowing. However, there is a law concerning vows. As such, in vowing and not performing, sin is imputed. In this, one can see how the law works against a person every single step of the way. It is a form of bondage, even if it is good and holy. The problem is not in the law but in man who does not perform the requirements of the law, whatever they may be. As such, verse 23, that which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. When the vow is made, and when the lips have uttered forth their words of obligation, then tishmor ve'asita, you shall keep and you shall do. It is a matter of law, and therefore to fail to perform it is sin, and to sin is thus to incur guilt. Verse 23 continues, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. The person in making a vow places himself under law. This was like Israel's commitment to the Lord concerning the Mosaic law, a voluntary act. Until they agreed to the law there at the base of Mount Sinai, it was not binding on them. But upon their agreement to it, they were no longer free from it. A vow is no different. It is not a point of law until it is spoken with the mouth. But once it is spoken, it becomes a point of law. The stipulations of which must be fulfilled accordingly. And this is what Christ did. First, he voluntarily placed himself under the law. God was under no obligation to enter into the stream of humanity and fulfill the Mosaic Code. But he did so. 
It says in Psalm 40, sacrifices and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. The author of Hebrews, as seen in our text verse today, uses these words to show that Christ voluntarily placed himself into this position in order to fulfill the law, take it away, and thereby establish the new covenant. But while under the law, the Lord made his own voluntary vows. That is prophesied in the 22nd Psalm. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The Lord made vows and promised to pay them, making himself the surety for their accomplishment. The author of Hebrews explains their fulfillment in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Thus, where Israel is shown to have failed in their performance of the code, Christ both kept and performed that which he spoke with his mouth. Verse 24, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. The final two verses of the chapter convey the same thought. In the first one, it deals with the vineyard. Anyone in Israel was allowed to walk upon the cultivated land at will, even onto somebody's property. It is the Lord's land, and he, through Moses, indicates as much. While there... The person is allowed to eat anavim kenafshecha saveecha, grapes according to your soul, your satisfaction. In other words, there is no prohibition on eating as much as one desires, even to filling, while in another's field. However, verse 24 continues, but you shall not put any in your empty container. The idea here concerns that which you can eat and nothing more. Nothing beyond that was to be taken from the field. Likewise, verse 25, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. Moses introduces two new words here. The first is kataf, meaning to crop off, cut down, or up, or pluck. It will be seen five times, once here, twice in Job, and twice in Ezekiel. The second word is found only here, melilah. It refers to the head of grain. Anyone could pick the heads and eat them at will, just as with the grapes. It is what Jesus and his disciples did as recorded in the Gospels. Matthew 12, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, 
Your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. What they were doing was perfectly legal. It is not the eating that they say isn't lawful, but the picking of the grain. As this was considered a work, the Pharisees spoke against him for it. In turn, Jesus defended himself by citing accounts from Scripture to demonstrate to them that what they were doing was not without precedent, and then applying such exemptions to himself. As far as the law of grain, they were not in violation of the precept. The allowance is given here by Moses. However, verse 25 finishes with, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Here is the second and last use of the word chermesh, meaning a sickle. It comes from haram, which is the act of devoting something to God through destruction, exterminating, and so on. Like filling a vessel with grapes, it was forbidden to cut down stalks of grain, which could then be carried out of the field and threshed. One could only pick and eat what was in his hand. The point of these two last verses is summed up in Jesus' final words to the Pharisees as he responded to their accusations. He said, but if you had known what this means, listen to these words, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The law set down by Moses now is one of mercy for the hungry. Though the field is the property of another, the law says that this is not stealing. Therefore, the law is given, in this case, to provide mercy to the hungry. That takes precedent over the Eighth Commandment. However, to take more would be a violation of the command. As this is so concerning the law being one of mercy, then the hungry are not being disobedient to the Sabbath when they eat what comes to their hand, because the law takes precedent over the Fourth Commandment. No violation of the Fourth Commandment results. Along with that, as the Sabbath was made for man, which is said in Mark 2.27, and as Christ is the ideal man, and as there was a need to be filled for the man, then what occurred on the Sabbath could not be considered a violation of the law. The idea of purity, holiness, and of what is just has been the guiding thought of what is presented in this chapter. Each point was given to Israel to guide their conduct and to maintain them as a holy people before the Lord. And yet, each point has, in one way or another, anticipated the person and work of Christ who would come and fulfill both the legal requirements set down for Israel and also the typology set forth by the Lord in these various precepts. Again and again, the law is revealing to us the greatness of what God has done in Christ by leading us to the law, through the law, and into a new place where we can fellowship with him apart from the condemning influence of the law. In this, he asks us to simply have faith in what he has done. It is this simple act of acknowledging his work that brings us into a right relationship with him. As such, we can then live for God without the sentence of death hanging over us that has troubled man since our very first father. Let us be wise and let us accept the gift of grace by receiving Christ as Savior. This is what God would ask of you today, and it is what I would ask you to consider with all of your heart and mind. Reach out and be restored to the renewing of your soul in Christ our Lord. Today is the day of salvation. I tell you, you don't have another day. Not one person here has another day to live. We may, but it's not given to us. 
We saw our sister die last Sunday night. A month ago, we had no idea. She's coming here from North Carolina, retiring here, looking forward to a long life of happiness and joy and going out to lunch with you all on Sunday afternoons. And all of a sudden, that's over. We don't know what the future holds. We have no idea. Tomorrow is never promised. All you have is today. And after that, you will stand. Whether you believe in him or not is irrelevant. You will stand before the Lord of creation, and you will be judged by him. And there's only one way that he can accept you. It is not through any other avenue, any other path, any other expression, except through the giving of his son. God is not doing two or three or ten things in this world. He is doing one thing. It is the giving of his son, the Messiah, for the sins of the world. And if you accept what he has done, and you receive the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ, you will be saved. We saw right in here an example of eternal salvation. Right in this passage today, you are not to return a slave to his owner. That sounds cold and unjust to the owner of the slave, doesn't it? I'm sorry. It is making a picture of what Christ has done with you who have called on him. You will never be returned to your old master. Thank God for Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do is believe and you will be eternally saved. Thank God for the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I've, so many times in the past week, I've been brought up with the notion of works follow naturally after being saved. And I've had to fight it every single way. Every single way. It does not naturally follow. You are saved by grace and by grace alone. If you add in works into the salvation message then it is not the salvation message. Salvation is a work of God and only of God, and doing is a work of man. There is no doing in our salvation, and so works do not naturally follow. They may follow, and they should follow, but they do not naturally follow. You may get saved and die. What works did you do there? You may get saved and get shot in the head and be lobotomized, and there's no works there. My mom's laughing about it. It's true, though. I am just trying to give you options to think the issue through. I've been hounded by this over the past week. People talking about this and saying that you are not saved by grace in the words that they're conveying. They're saying you are, but then they add something in. There's no adding into the gospel. Please understand that you are saved solely through believing in what Christ did. Don't make a stumbling block for people any bigger than it has to be. They need to know that they can be forgiven because there are people out there that believe I cannot be forgiven. My sins are too great. And you start throwing in works on top of that and all of a sudden he just walks away from the message you're telling him. His sins can be forgiven. Her sins can be forgiven. Nothing is outside of the love of God which is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Please call on him today. They don't understand grace. Grace is unmerited favor. That is it. If you add doing to it, it is your work, and it is not unmerited. Our closing verse comes from Romans 10. It is verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Next week, and you know, I know I have to stop and kind of burp up that air. I got a, I think I've told you, I've got an esophagus with a, a closing on it, and everything gets stuck there, and I can't breathe, and so eventually I have to stop. I try not to do that, but I apologize. Next week is Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Israel often issued these without considering the source. 
It's entitled, A Certificate of Divorce. That'll be your 69th Deuteronomy sermon, and I hope that if you're not here, you will listen to it later. I'm going to challenge somebody's poor theology because somebody in this congregation asked me to evaluate his sermon. I'm not going to hold back. I feel no compunction doing it. Paul did not hold back when he rebuked Peter in front of everybody and for all of Christian history. Theology actually matters. Saying what is correct about the Lord, about his covenants, matters. But not only that, I'll give you some points about divorce that you probably never, ever thought of. It's a wonderful four verses. Imagine that, four verses. It's great, great passage. I hope, well, I hope the Lord comes for us, but if he doesn't, I hope I don't plow into the... Uh, the earth on that airplane. I, I always tell well, I always tell Hedico before I leave, if I don't come back and I give her all of the information she needs, because you don't know. We were just talking about it, and now you're laughing like I'm really coming back. I have no idea. You know, I'm getting up on an airplane with a bunch of COVID-infected people. I mean... But they're vaxxed. <laughs> yeah, they're vaxxed. That's true. Okay. I got a poem for you here called Holy Conduct Before the Lord. Wait a minute. I got something to read you. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now I got a poem for you called Holy Conduct Before the Lord. But before we get into that poem, I have a question for you. And before I, before you blurt something out, please listen. This is a two part question. So if you get one and not the other, don't blurt it out. This is a two-part question. You have to get both to get this. This was given to us by Hart and Julie Terrell. He ordered these all the way from England because he saw them and he wanted them. And so he uh, had a, oh, it says, um, uh, feeling lost, my book is your map. God. Okay. I, he gave me one personally, and so I'm, I put it right above my door when I come in and go out. This is the first in, or the last thing I see when I go out. Okay, so, and if I turn around, it'll be the first. Okay, if I walk in backwards. Um, okay, which would be hard because it's up three stairs, and that would be kind of dangerous, so I won't do that. Okay, this is my two-part question. Paul returned a slave to Philemon. What is his name, and what does it mean? Okay? Yes. Okay, but what does it mean? I keep I see lots of people getting the guy's name. Yeah. I will tell you something about it. He was not useful to you, but now he is useful to me. Anybody? Paul's making a pun. I'm trying to help you. Now you can blurt it out. It's on Isimus, but we don't know what <laughs> I can't believe nobody's getting this. It's the hinge of the entire epistle. His name means useful. And you don't get this. Okay. Okay. I, I bet you there are 50 people out there right now going, oh, I got it. I got it. Okay. Here we go. I really thought that was going to go quick. I'm sorry. I saw a lot of wheels turning, but this will have to wait till our sermon on a certificate of divorce. Maybe you'll get this next week, this luscious, wonderful prize. I'd be good on, what is it, um, The Price is Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, no. Okay. 
All right, here we go. Holy conduct before the Lord, part two. You shall not give back to his master, this you shall not do. The slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell within your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him. You shall not oppress him as this word states. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel, so to you I tell. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God. Such thinking would be flawed for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest to your brother. This is a command and not a request. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, so to you I address, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, such you shall not do, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, if this you do, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform as certainly as north is north and south is south. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you had promised with your mouth. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. Your mouth is to be the sole measure. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand again and again, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence and hear your word preached. We pray for the people we mentioned at the beginning of this service. We know that there are many difficulties and trials out there. We certainly lift up our prayers to you for Don and his two sons as they bury their wife and mother in two days, and they will have great memories of her, but they will also have the certainty and the surety that she is with you in heaven. And they know this. They have that opportunity in their lives to receive Christ. And if any of the three of them have not, we would pray that they would do so, so that they would have the absolute assurance of knowing that they will be with her and in your presence for all eternity. And Lord, we did a dedication of a young child today and we would pray for him as well that he would grow up into a strong man of God not be pulled astray by the things of this world Lord hear our prayers for him and may August just have a great life ahead one which is honoring of you we pray these things to your glory and we certainly pray them in Jesus name amen, amen.